everyone. My name is Lydia. Hello, this is Carla. And this is? No Librarians Allowed. We're happy to record again. We don't have any guests today, but we have many ideas on technology and libraries. Well, we have one guest today. We have Nina as our guest today. She's curled up on my lap and gently licking my arm, which is making me very happy. <laughs> this is how things are in <laughs> library podcasts. Um, so I guess we've been thinking about several themes that have happened in library world um, uh, recently. And um, I guess we'll begin with this idea of innovation versus maintenance. Uh, there's so much talk about innovative services and improving things and uh, in many ways uh, chasing shiny, yeah. very exciting projects, which absolutely is interesting. You mm -hmm. know, we, we love that. The new and the next. We want to see it. We want to work in it. All of that is great. Who doesn't? And so there's a couple of parallels. Obviously, libraries are not immune from that. We've been lucky to work together in a unit that is seeking out and testing new technologies and new possibilities for services. That's very exciting. And on the kind of civic front, there's the, the trend or maybe the movement of smart city technology, so kind of integrating technologies into civic life. But the reason I bring this up is recently, my friend Bianca Wiley in Toronto posted you know, this tweet, and I'm sure it's making its round, about an article that came out of Fast... Uh, code design called the enduring mythology of the whiz kid and you know we're happy to link the article um, in our in our post but essentially rehashing or taking up this idea that in government the real change makers aren't those 24 year olds you know engineers who are parachuted from silicon valley or the you know canadian equivalent maybe in waterloo but a diverse range of people who have worked in and around government for years and who are invested in their communities and who are trying to tackle those complex problems and one quote that i liked from this article uh, said this for most cities, innovation doesn't look like autonomous vehicles or the nausea-inducing Internet of Things, nor should it. The parts of cities that most need innovation and where the vast majority of the work is being done is in the mundane, at the everyday level where people live and work. And I think there's value in, I guess, celebrating it and, and giving space and time to see that work, to talk about it, to make those people visible. And that's actually a huge part of technology work nowadays. Yeah. What are some of the things you think about when you think about mundane technologies or <laughs> mundane everyday things that technology could help with? Improving garbage collection routes, making uh, that, I guess, process that happens every week more maybe efficient quieter safer so that it's less disruptive to both obviously the neighborhoods and the people doing it making it you know a little bit more fun so it could be at the algorithm level of planning the routes and i i would imagine a lot of it is already being done my friend david and i are, run the group beta city and we, you know, we've talked about like smart garbage cans or uh, recently we've talked about these sensors that can essentially count people walking by without identifying humans so having some sense of you know who has come by your mural or public art piece or intersection without putting anyone at risk because we have those tools to count people in a reliable way rather than anecdotally 
at a low cost so that it's not draining energy and still have some data, have some sense of viability or the livability of the city. So those are very small things. They rarely you know, get awards or get talked about. And yet, if your garbage doesn't get collected, your life is affected pretty badly. <laughs> so those are just very small examples. For some reason, when we're talking about this, I just have like this image in my mind of these hardworking people who are working on things like garbage pickup and those quality of life things that are really essential, kind of looking at like Maslow's hierarchy or whatever, like right. those are essential to our modern life. And on the other hand, there's like Elon Musk and like Richard Branson. And I'm picturing like the space rocket ships and, you know, the new Tesla that was announced. And we may have talked about it last time, but the press conference that Elon Musk gave where he was like, I don't have time to answer these boring questions about cost and efficiency and whatever. Like, let's talk about something interesting. It is this kind of celebrity status for the individuals, but also for the tech itself. Like, can tech become celebrity? Are there certain kinds of tech that become kind of the next hot thing, the next celebrated and sought after and talked about at the expense of maybe more worthy kinds of or more impactful kinds of developments? Like, something else I'm thinking about is mosquito nets. You know, there are initiatives to provide mosquito nets to people in developing countries where malaria is a problem and that makes a huge difference for people. But like, is, is that something that's really focused on or are we kind of chasing the next big idea, the next big thing? So yes, now I'm equating tech to celebrity culture <laughs> and wondering what are the celebrity pieces of tech that we have and what's the consequence of thinking about them in that way or thinking about the designers in that way of being these celebrities? Absolutely, that's a great question. Of course, mosquito nets are technologies, right? We are primarily talk about digital technologies. Right now, machine learning and AI, Internet of Things was mentioned in this article, are the most probably complex or more recent ones, but we are using tech everywhere all the time. And yet, some of the more basic ones, look how they have improved our lives, right? Like washing machines. Those are all technologies that are often highlighted in popular history, I guess, or people's history rather than celebrating the grand individuals. And another interesting thing, of course, the, the two individuals you've mentioned, and there's Where's many the more. Ladies? Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're very wealthy white men, right? And there's a reason, there's, there's a history to that selection and magnification. You know, we do have more diverse CEOs of tech companies. However, they, to this day, remain men. What was it that that article recently said that there are more men in power called John than all the, all the women combined in either in Ew. politics? <laughs> so what what does that say about our culture? I'm not crazy about Alain de Botton's School of Life channel. Uh, you know, he it's interesting that he's brought philosophy into the everyday and on, on I don't YouTube. I know what that is. You have to tell me what that is. <laughs> Alain de Baton is, a, I guess, more of a popular philosopher, and he's written several books like Status Anxiety and The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, which I have. So he's trying to, I guess, democratize philosophy. And so YouTube is a huge output, a way to reach mass audiences. YouTube is like the number two visited website in the world. So, he, you know, having a channel that mm. produces, I guess, short, interesting, but intellectual videos is actually a great way to share ideas in the contemporary age. But he, you know, he has his criticism and that's fine. Uh, but I've watched one video where he says, 
In the West, at least certainly maybe since the Enlightenment, we've valued and promoted and celebrated individuals at the cost of groups or communities. And that's seen, obviously, in, in our history books, in our media. And so, yeah, everything you've said, I guess, highlights that, that why don't we celebrate uh, living in the neighborhood and doing everyday things that we all do, because that's actually what most of our life is made of. Rarely do we uh, design a car, and frankly, the masses probably drive the Mazdas mm -hmm. and the Toyotas, right? Yep. So it's interesting to think about the impact on even small groups versus the masses. And for some reason, yeah, we, we don't value masses. We are skeptical of them, and they're not exciting. The cult of the individual who lives the great life and, like, does all the things right and, you know, is that ideal person that we have in our mind that we want to be. And then, you know, recognizing our shared humanity and, like, what is day-to-day -day life for people? What are the struggles of every day and how beautiful and worthy those struggles are. Yeah. Look at film. Certainly American films love this idea of the underdog overcoming all the barriers. And they're statistically sure there'll always be individuals who are able to rise above, overcome, beat the odds, whatever you want to call it. However, most of us can't or won't or shouldn't and don't want to. That sets us all up for failure and for an alienated, unhappy life. And I guess going on for years without recognizing it is, is a huge disservice to all of us and makes us unhappy. So this is a pretty interesting... <laughs> Wait, how did we get here? <laughs> what? Uh, and, and yeah, this, this idea of innovation, I guess so... My argument would be that while innovation is important and it does push history, services, technology, contemporary life forward, we are grateful to have improvements in our lives. How that's done, how that's talked about and contextualized is, I think, very important work. And, and I would hope that librarians, teachers, workers who support groups and, and community are able to contribute to that contextualizing and I guess question it and, and have those conversations. So one concrete example that we have that in libraries is maybe what are mundane technologies that we use every day and that are actually mm -hmm. continue to this day to be in such high demand is desktop yeah. computing. So my things that I want to talk about this week <laughs> are basically just things that have happened to me in my work over the last two weeks or so that have been technology related and that I've been thinking about. So we were so, so excited to finally, after what seems like years of talking about it, have a new desktop client for our public PCs. And the branch that I work at is very, very busy and computers remain in extremely high demand. Like we are one of those locations where no, we couldn't get rid of our books. Like we are very busy all across the board, but if we could somehow take over like the organization on the second floor and just make it full of computers, they would all be in use all the time. So access to internet, access to machine that allows you to word processing, allows you to, I mean, I'm just trying to think of examples of what people are doing every day in the library, writing resumes, working on their papers. We have many, many kids who are there for hours at a time playing video games. We have adults who are playing video games. We have people who are watching YouTube videos, music videos they're singing along to. We have, we have people working on presentations. We have people working on their immigration forms. We have people studying for their driver's exams and there's no longer a book that's allowed. We have people doing banking, people doing shopping, people doing 
searches for places to live. We have people posting their own ads for places to live. We have people on Facebook, people on email, people on Skype, doing all of the everyday things that they do in their day-to-day and with all the things that technology impacts for us. People either don't have a computer at home, they are down temporarily, maybe they have a smartphone or another device, but for some reason they need a computer. I haven't even gotten into the the fact that we have printer scan or fax machine. Fax machine, I love it. it. It was set for some reason this week that it was making its regular noises, like normally it's quiet. But I was helping someone with the fax machine and it was doing its like weird beep, boop, 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 dialing thing and then like the horrible screeching noise and I was just like, whoa, this is quite the sound to be capturing in a 2018 library. <laughs> like the horrible screeching noise. Oh, good old fax machine. So we, in addition to this new desktop environment, have also a new printing software that um, allows the person to log off of their computer and then just release their print job from next to the printer rather than sending their potentially very sensitive documents through to the printer, abandoning their computer while it's still logged in and walking across the library over to a printer to pick up what is hopefully their document that someone else may now have looked at also. So the changes were brought in um, kind of overnight, like many tech changes happen. We got all new PCs, we got the the new stuff software that was installed on them and we got this new printing system all at once overnight so staff had had a chance to get used to it at another library that had already had it installed so that was nice we sent some over there they got familiar with it they were total champs again this idea that like adaptability flexibility resilience is important in modern day library staff is huge because they took it and rolled with it like total champs and it's funny because the aftermath is like some people express extreme joy about it. Mm-hmm. For the most part, people are chugging away as normal. They don't comment, whatever. Rather than having like this weird box that shows up, they actually have what looks like a desktop. They can click on a file explorer. They can click on an icon that says Google Chrome. They can you know, work in an actual computing environment that is going to be similar and has direct application and skills they can carry over to another computing environment instead of the weird hampered library version that we have to put on our systems in order to have time regulations and limits and you know limited access to certain features of the computer in order to keep safe and whatever. So what I have noticed is now we don't have questions about, we're, we're not having to help people use this kind of crippled software program. They see it, they know how this is supposed to work. They know what this computing environment is supposed to be. They're way more familiar with it. Even if they're coming to our computer basics classes, we run one every Sunday. Total beginners. At least the laptops are set up in a way that we use that is a real desktop. Now they can transfer that skill over to the library computers. It's not something that's different. And so it has reminded me again how this is such a basic and essential service that the library provides. And what heroes the people are who have uh, worked on it to make this simple act something that is much better for the people using it. So no, we're not talking about installing a robot into the library or like Elon Musk is building some space-time portal that we can all use or whatever. We're talking about providing basic computing, basic internet access for people in the library system and how this small improvement to their user experience 
is so monumental in some ways because it just normalizes and standardizes their activity from whatever computing workstation they're working in. And like, I'm so happy and so grateful and so pleased to see this change. And again, like it's, it just reminds me kind of talking about the mundane. Mm -hmm. This is not the sexy thing. This is a regular public computing environment. You know, we've been hearing forever, like uh, people are not even going to have computers anymore. Like, are we going to have laptops? Are we going to go to tablets? Maybe it's just going to be like a minority report thing. It's like, well, maybe, but right now <laughs> this is what people are using and this is what people need. And seeing that change, it reiterates for me the importance of that very necessary service we provide, but mm -hmm. also then is making me think again about digital literacy basics and how the library is addressing that. So yes, providing this technology and this service as a point of access. Yes, providing help with people on demand for when they have questions about whatever it is they're working on. But then thinking about instruction and how we actually go about that, which is something that I've been thinking about for a long time and wondering about how we are teaching people core digital literacy skills. What are those skills? We can Google and find a quadrillion lists of what those skills are. Have we examined what is the curriculum that we've come up with for these classes? Have we looked at instructional models and actually done research into figuring out what is effective for someone learning X, Y, and Z skill? So if we're teaching an adult to read, I'm making big presumptions about what research has been done in that category um, because I actually have no idea. So maybe we have certain levels of curriculum. We're thinking about ELL, for example. There's a level one, there's a level two. There are certain content and concepts that a person knows that have been established and standardized in some way so that there can be testing on them. What's the equivalent for digital literacy? Is there work that needs to be done in that area to standardize that in a way that is evidence-based and linked to, um, I don't know, maybe other uh, outcomes or like if it's to different standards. So level one, you're capable of doing X. Level two, you're capable of doing Y. And then what is the best instructional method for people mm -hmm. to learn that? That's something that right now I would bet my bottom dollar that most libraries are offering PowerPoint presentation, working through demonstrating certain concepts and functions about a computer or about email or about Word or whatever, and then having the class follow along with an activity, the staff member goes around and helps them one-on-one. -on -one. Is this an effective way for people to be learning about digital literacy basics? Is it something that has been analyzed and studied according to adult learning needs, according to, hmm. I don't know, are there like computer learning assessment studies that have been developed? So I feel like, again, could be wrong, have done some preliminary researching, but not a lot, that this is an under-researched area that I think could have huge impact if we looked into it and then designed our tech help or our digital literacy programming around those concepts. You're Ooh. right. I, I don't know if there is a textbook, if it has been studied, if it's valued enough to be studied versus moving on. Yeah. 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 And apply, because you're right, the core... Okay, so we know what is it, 86% of the times the public stations are in use? You've listed a lot of activities. So some of it is maybe anecdotal. Some of it, it, it we, we do have tools to track it to actually see how much time is being sent, uh, spent on mm -hmm. 
email versus right. document creation versus Skype messaging. Again, without being intrusive and mm -hmm. spying on users, but we, we do have some tools to have a sense, right? To understand what people are doing. But at the same time, in terms of research, like who studies what, how much time and resources get dedicated to studying public workstation use in public libraries. You're right, that's, mm -hmm. all of those are questions of power and values and relationships. So mm -hmm. you're right, that's a very important, and you know, the, the things you've described as um, having a consistent computing experience that prepares the library user who had, you know, is still learning and then is applying for a job and will get employed at a, any organization, to have that consistency and comfort and being prepared and confident, that's actually a social justice issue, right? Rather mm -hmm. than limiting them to some sort of weird box that doesn't exist anywhere else, <laughs> that we force them to follow our rules. Yeah. It's not fair to them. So, yeah. Yeah. And rant. <laughs> slash celebration of the public computing environment at the libraries. <laughs> and it's interesting you brought up the point of um, it switched on overnight. So in terms of the service kind of flip, of course, I work on the side where I've seen my IT colleagues spent months, maybe weeks, uh, preparing, testing, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that it's seamless. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that went into the design and making sure that we, you know, by the time it rolls out, that it's not painful to the end user, you know, to use the contemporary terminology. So again, there there is a lot of work that library customers don't see, and nor should they, right? They they should expect to come in and, and have a good thing that works. So I, I guess, how, how do you, you know, celebrate or how do you give representation to that labor, to those people who maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I guess by us talking about it, we do acknowledge that human beings make this happen, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. And the mundane can be the most impactful. <laughs> yeah. I guess I don't know how this relates to social justice or access. Ultimately, it's about access and the challenges and opportunities that the 21st century brings in terms of, uh, so we, we've been talking about tools, but now I guess to go to collections, right? So to this day, I would argue that most people, me and you meet in communities, we go to an event and we mention we're librarians, people think of the stuff, right? The collection, the books, and that's fair. Why shouldn't they? Yeah, they should, because that's what we do. <laughs> I'm, I get super weirded out when people are like, we're not just about stuff. It's like, yeah, but we also are about stuff, and the stuff is badass, and like, you should want to use that stuff if you choose, whatever. I won't get into the shoulds. But we have many excellent stuffs that you can make use of, and why do we kind of want to shy away from that? Yeah, and certainly the collection world is absolutely not sheltered from the impacts of technology. So two points maybe that you you may be interested in, Brad, here I'm speaking for you, and <laughs> bringing up is, what is it? So the, the decline of the physical copy for media, so not necessarily de death of the book, again, mm -hmm. has not happened yep. to this day anyway. Yep. And then the rising costs of streaming. So not just e-books, but obviously we know that e-resources like e-video and music are actually hugely in demand mm -hmm. because they're so convenient and seamless. Well, I mean, this again, so we were talking about this before we started recording, but <laughs> basically as I was giving Lydia the lowdown of how my week has been going, I mentioned that we had 
just our regular staff meeting, but we had a visit from someone in the collections department to give us kind of like a high level overview of what they're thinking about and what keeps them up at night. What are they looking at? What are the stats they're looking at? What are the problems that they are trying to foresee and then overcome and anticipate? And so obviously one of the big things was, well, okay, so two big things are, yes, the death of the physical media object. So in this case, specifically, we were talking about CDs and DVDs and projections of, you know, CDs being not printed anymore. So that's the thing is like, not just um, people don't use them, but not actually being produced within the next five to 10 years. DVDs and Blu-rays and any disc not being produced in the next, let's say 10 years. So by, I think by 2027. So what does this mean kind of for our collections? And then the corollary, of course, is the increasing cost and the increasing use, but also exponentially the increasing cost of the online collections. So e-books, e-music, magazines, whatever it was the physical format now translated over. And so looking at the outrageous costs that are put onto libraries and all of the negatives that come with that, not owning something in perpetuity, not having control over really any part of it, being totally kind of at the mercy of the vendors, the, the middle person, not having direct contact or negotiating power with publishers. Like it, it is a question of access because what does it mean for the people who again are not at that place? Who knows what the world will look like in terms of how people are accessing things in 10 years? Yeah, it's, it's this idea of where our resources are going as libraries and what are we getting out of it and what is our obligation to people? So if we're spending all of our money, this is not new, this is nothing innovative, but again, maybe that's kind of the point is that it's something that we've been talking about for so long mm -hmm. and it is something that is getting to be more and more kind of basic. And though we have seen with eBooks, like, no, the regular book is not going anywhere. Who is to say if that's the case in the future? So far, the predictions of the death of the book have been just, you know, normal, ridiculous, whatever. But with other formats, who is to say what's going to happen with them? And being stuck with these very poor user experiences, regardless of the fact that they are, again, outrageously expensive, being stuck with these very poor user experiences when users can very easily access music for no cost on YouTube, no cost on Spotify, though with adverts. There are way easier streaming services that have way, way better collections than probably any vendor could ever offer. Where does that leave the library and what then is our role in providing that content? Will our role as content provider end up shifting in some way? Will we then be providing access to other resources? Is there a reason that we would continue working with streaming music vendors when maybe we should just be providing like Spotify subscriptions to people, <laughs> you know, and assessing kind of overall what is the experience that people are getting out of these mangled, terrible ways of interacting with a digital file that should never be like restricted use you know, expiration, blah, blah, blah. And yes, I know all the reasons and whatever, but again, it's ultimately something we have no control over. The user experience is not something that I can advocate for necessarily. I can send comments into overdrive and say, uh, people really don't like this. Or I can be like, people are having trouble with this issue. Can you work on it, please? But I'm not designing that. We're not in control of that. And so again, it's it's kind of this thing that 
sitting in the staff meeting, I'm like, man, yes, you're right. Like, we are still talking about this. We haven't fixed it. You know, I'm thinking back to when I was in library school, like writing papers on scholarly communication and, you know, Elsevier and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, we're still there. Mm -hmm. So this is another of those like unsexy, non-celebrity, B-list celebrity areas that can get easily brushed aside while we celebrate and focus on the big, shiny new. And yet have an impact on people's lives, right? It's our collection. This is the library. Yes, we're also other things, blah, blah, blah. But yes, the collection, like that is still a huge pillar of what we are and and our mandate. One of our mandates is to provide access to cultural and information objects. And so looking more universally at how can people access those things and what will that look like? I don't know. It's very interesting. No, it is also a social justice issue. I've been thinking of that too because... If the majority of people can afford Netflix subscription and Spotify subscription and whatever other new media that's streaming, because it's so seamless. So we we have obviously models that work and are pain-free compared to the experience of library resources that have the extra barriers added by vendors that frankly are reflective of the, of the 20th century, right? Yeah, to to add the the model to the physical of of the physical object to a digital thing that is fundamentally a different experience, right? It's a piece of software, and surely we know how to work with software nowadays, right? Which is why people are going to YouTube and Spotify. Some people will have access to the you know smooth, seamless e-services, but not all do. And when other alternatives aren't available, how is that just, right? So what is our role in ensuring that we're looking out for the other types of users? Well, and I'm just like, frankly, the other types of users do not need more friction in their lives. You know, like... Great point. Come on. Everybody deserves to have a great experience with whatever they're working with. But to then say, okay, so the people who can't afford Spotify and whatever, we'll give you this clunky, difficult system that yes you can learn and no it's not the worst but but it's a pain and it will take you more time and it will take you more mental energy to learn this thing like why 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 yeah what message is that sending you right so speaking of social justice i recently came across a paper again another twitter post that made me question maybe some of the more sexier, newer topics. Uh, you know, data viz is all over the place. And I'm actually really glad that we are talking about data visualization because I think humans are fundamentally very visual creatures, right? A lot of our brain is devoted to eyesight and interpreting images. So I'm really glad that data viz is kind of in the contemporary, you know, discourse, whatever. So this was a tweet about a recent paper that came out called Feminist Data Visualization by Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein. Again, we'll be happy to link to this podcast. And um, without, you know, necessarily covering the paper, some of the takeaways that maybe the principles of data feminism that are outlined by this presentation and, and the article include. So these are, I guess, how how can you be feminist in data analysis and representation? And I'll be honest, I should know this stuff or I should think about it. And yet I don't consider it because I also live in contemporary world and I, I guess, am swayed to the power structures, the, the culture, the principles, like everything. So 
What are the principles of data feminism? They include things like rethinking binaries, forms that list adult male first, adult female next, child and no other options, right? Those are statements of power and culture. Examining power, so it kind of relates to that. Legitimizing embodiment and affect. So much of our culture discounts the experience of being in a body, of being tired, of emotion, and yet it has impact on our lives, on our mental states, and on, on knowledge and how it gets shared. Considering content, so not just, I guess, the form, but also the choice of the topic. There are many data visualizations, but how many of them are about women's lives, right? Seniors' lives, children's experience. Making labor visible, I think that's one huge contribution, obviously, that feminism has done is highlight the labor, the work that goes into making it happen, right? Archivists should, should be celebrated because they allow research to take place. And embracing pluralism, I guess that relates to binaries, right? So why is the choice of those two genders on a form and nothing else versus providing a blank? Those are decisions that were made at one point. So I, I don't necessarily have any concrete analyses or thoughts, but I, I did want to highlight that this work is happening, discourse is being made, and we are seeing a lot more, I guess, critical perspectives. So those questioning of power, race, gender, especially in technology, because technology is part of all aspects of our lives. So yeah, data feminism, who would have thought? I'm like, you would have thought, Lydia, <laughs> you're being so modest. <laughs> I'm like, you think about this all day, every day. <laughs> but I take your point that kind of like me sitting in that staff meeting with ebooks suddenly coming back to the forefront. We have so much that goes on and so much that we're considering and so much work that we're just trying to get through, you know, and that we're trying to accomplish and achieve. And yes, it is important and we are thankful for the people who remind us of how to then rethink that work in different ways and help us keep practicing it mm -hmm. and keep bringing that into our daily practice. Sometimes I do think about every opportunity to be reflective and critical of the decisions that I'm making, you know, the forms, the applications that I'm creating, it can be exhausting, right? So I'm also a human being and so is everyone else um, making these tools. I suppose we shouldn't as individuals necessarily burden ourselves with, you know, having that pressure solely on our shoulders. However, it does matter in teams, in organizations that then put the product out, that then stand behind their website, their mobile app, because it does have impact on multiple people's lives. So there are opportunities, I think, to bring up these points in meetings, in development cycles. Um, so, you know, without having this pressure to necessarily solve all the world's problems, Maybe only Carla and I. Back to therapist. <laughs> feel this pressure. Uh, but there, I guess we, we have strategies and we have tools, and so we should be aware and find opportunities while being realistic that not everything will get solved tomorrow. Uh, I'm, I'm just so glad that these conversations are happening and that there are smart people talking about this effectively and sharing this knowledge mm -hmm. free of charge. This was an yeah, open yeah. access article that I was able to access without paying Thank for you. it. So, And I guess related to that, you know, we've talked about being human, right? How 
You know, we're often like brains in a jar in contemporary, maybe technology world. We're computers, we're thought of as computers. Yeah. And yet, we should celebrate being human because it's who we are and, and actually so meaningful and exciting. So one way that technology, I guess, intersects with being human is... Digital storytelling. I feel like I need a little like, bong, 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 <laughs> like every time I'm going to talk about digital storytelling, which will be all day, every day, if I could. <laughs> so we've probably mentioned before, I mean, this is just my jam of late because I was fortunate enough to do a little bit of work on a grant that the library got to do some digital storytelling. And I mean, basically the idea is short, personal, multimedia story, two to five minutes, has to be about your own experience. It's If you want to talk about history or whatever, like some big event, as long as it's your relation to that and what you're interpreting about it, that's that's what it's about. And it is just my favorite intersection of community and technology that I've come across. And it applies, I don't know, I feel like in every context, in so many mm. forms, is so much potential. And what I, the reason I'm thinking about it this week, um, I attended a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's panel discussion. And there was like an academic from the Faculty of Native Studies. There was a woman who was the president of an indigenous association who, you know, has basically been an activist her entire life, goes, you know, international meetings and conferences. This is what she does. And then there was a woman who is indigenous who has suffered through and mastered addictions. She has faced horrible things in her life, terrible tragedies, and has worked very hard to overcome them and is now working on, in small ways, in, in whatever way she can, to improve the lives of indigenous people around her and to help make the stories known about her own life experience and about her families and about others. And there was a question from the audience from a woman who identified that she was fairly new to Canada. She came from Iran. She had no real knowledge of the indigenous peoples of Canada and the history behind it, which I find terrifying and shocking. Like, what is our citizenship testing doing if that's not part of it? And I mean, then we're getting into like regular history for <laughs> Canadians who have been like natural Canadians or whatever, people who were born in this country, like what is our history program and et cetera, et cetera. So, and she kind of said like, she came to the country, didn't know anything about it and basically kind of immediately took on the stereotypes that were presented to her and based on her own very limited experience. So, you know, she said, I would take the bus in like the old Strathcona area. I would see the same uh, indigenous people who would hang around there and they were homeless and they were alcoholics. So that was then her, you know, she's like, okay, yeah, I get it. I like these stereotypes, great. And of course, through time, she is learning more and she is meeting more indigenous people and she's going to sessions like the one that the library hosted about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And she is, you know, becoming more woke, if you want to use that word, about reconciliation and about the history of the country and about her own her own experience. And what it was coming down to and kind of what the response from the panel was, talk to us and like meet people and go participate in things and offer help in some ways and just get to know one another. And it's one of the telling a person's story, having power over how that story is told rather than having to go through a publisher or some kind of mediator of any way, being able to share your personal story, to create it and then to share it in a public forum like online, 
is just such an unbelievable opportunity, I feel, for the creator, for someone who has something to say and who wants to share for the benefit of other people, but also for their own benefit. So to help with feelings of self-worth, to say, this is what I went through, like, this is who I am, this is my struggle, that means something. No, I don't have data on what that means, but it means something. And then the opportunity for someone else to listen to that, to me, is like even bigger lately than the ability to tell the story because the possibilities that exist around um, expanding a person's audience to someone else from a different culture, from a different experience, from a different background is an opportunity to learn about each other's differences but also similarities. So I happened to have a meeting this week too with one of the indigenous, uh, I can't remember what exactly the title is, who works with the um, school board but she's like an indigenous advisor kind of at the school and she works with the FNMI kids who are at the high school and at some other junior high and high schools in the south side where I work. And talking about what we could maybe do with some of the kids who are in her program, digital storytelling was a huge one. They already have their like high school TV program. They basically know how to use all of the editing equipment. Like they will teach us how to do it, but it's this idea of then personalizing it and making their own story, which could be very powerful for them. But she was also talking about the kids in the ELL classes that she goes to do a week or two at a time talking about the Indigenous context in Canada, Indigenous history, reconciliation, what that means for newcomers to Canada, and how a lot of the kids in those classes come from countries that have a colonial experience. They may be Indigenous themselves or have uh, like an Indigenous cultural background or an Indigenous great-grandparent. And she said that some have reacted very emotionally to some of the things that she's talked about, of learning about what has gone on in Canada and what impact that story could have mm. if it's told and shared. And maybe the Indigenous kids from Canada and the kids from this class both are working on telling their stories and then meeting and learning from each other in a beautiful film festival setting, which is what I'm imagining for the library. <laughs> but this is my dream. And I just like... It's, it's, again, one of these very concrete examples or it's just an example of where I think something like this could be used. Simple technology, it's not complicated. If you have an iPhone, if you have an audio recorder, you can do it. And it's an opportunity, again, kind of for that mundane, for that personal nobody, non-celebrity experience, just a person to share their story and have someone else listen to it and it builds and I think strengthens a relationship and a feeling of empathy and the feeling of a common humanity. And to me, that's like the best power of technology. Great, that's very graceful, Carla. Oh. <laughs> that, that's beautiful because how common it is to talk to people, right? Like what is more uniting rather than alienating yeah. than to listen to another human being, to talk to another person. Being an immigrant myself, I think those early years of coming to a new place are in many ways formative. I don't know if for adults if they are, but certainly for teens, because there is so much unknown. So you're right. Um, I think whether it's exposure to variety of stories, not just the dominant mm -hmm. narratives is important. And yet we are all human beings. So very beautifully put. Thank you. I love it so much. <laughs> so on that human-centered note, we will end today's discussion. Yeah, I need to get up and stretch. So thank you for joining us. And please, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we are up on iTunes or some other podcasting service. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And hope to have you listen again.
Great. Thank you very much. Bye.